This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. Hi, and welcome to Storytelling Animals, a member of the iRaw Podcast Network and a podcast about climate, ecology, and animal justice, where we use books to help make sense of our environmental crisis and think about ways forward. Um, the, the book that we discussed today uh, thinks about ways forward in part by looking backward. Um, it's called Sugaring Down. It's a novel by Dan Chodorkoff. Um, and it takes place in 1960s Vermont at a commune of 60s radicals. Um, Dan will tell us more about the book. Dan is not only a novelist, he is a um, longtime organizer and activist. He's the co-founder of the Institute for Social Ecology, uh, co-founder along with Murray Bookchin, for those who don't know. Um, social ecology is a system of thought that seeks to both... Um, diagnose our, our twin social and ecological problems and offer a way out. Uh, in our interview, Dan will go into more depth about what social ecology entails. Um, it's a way of looking at the world that has been influential on me. Uh, and Dan also talks about working with Murray Bookchin, who is sort of widely seen as the, the founder and uh, developer of social ecology. So yeah, we talk about what Bookchin was like. We talk about the novel Sugaring Down, we talk about Dan's other writings and his own experience in the 60s and Utopia and novels that inspired him and all sorts of things. Um, so I hope you enjoy the interview. Um, before you do, a couple quick notes as always. Please consider liking, subscribing, sharing with a friend, signing up for my free weekly newsletter, or uh, best of all, supporting this podcast on Patreon with a small monthly donation. Uh, about four dollars a month or or more if you like um with that comes a few perks and also keeps this podcast going um i did get one new subscriber this week thank you um and let's keep that going see if i can reach 30 subscribers by episode 40 and to get there i need about one new subscriber per episode could this episode's new subscriber be you all right back to the interview back to dan social ecology and sugaring down Sugaring Down. Um, Dan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me on, Dave. I appreciate it. Um, So, you know, in addition to being the author of this novel, you wrote another novel before. You are the author of a nonfiction essay collection, The Anthropology of Utopia, and you're the the former uh, former director, I believe, and and co-founder of the Institute for Social Ecology. Yes, I am. So we'll... We'll touch on some of that, I think, as well. But maybe let's just start with uh, the novel in your own words. How would you sort of describe it to someone? Well, Sugaring Down is really a a coming-of-age story of sorts, a political coming-of-age story that's based in 1968 on a commune in northeastern Vermont. And, of course, the late 60s was a time when the counterculture was really beginning to stretch its legs. And it was also a very tumultuous time in the history of the new left. And the people populating the commune are sort of uh, refugees from the city, people who had been active in Students for Democratic Society and the anti-war movement and the civil rights movement, and moved to Vermont to try to create a commune that could serve as a model for a new society, a place that really embodied their, their values and their highest aspirations. 
And as the story unfolds, we trace primarily through the eyes of a young couple, David and his partner, Jill, uh, both the development and ultimately the unraveling of the commune. And it's all surrounded by and influenced by the war in Vietnam and the opposition to it. The commune struggles to maintain a sense of relevance in terms of the anti-war movement while they're also working on their own interpersonal relationships and adapting to the pretty harsh environment of northeastern Vermont, learning to farm, trying to become more self-reliant, finding allies in the local community, uh, mostly in the form of a couple an old Vermont farm couple that lives down the road from them who emerge as sort of their guardian angels and mentors and teaching them the ways of country living. And they also struggle with uh, opposition in the town, people who are very upset at their being there, a reactionary element that would like to see them go. In the course of that, they go through a whole series of adventures and misadventures and ultimately the unraveling of the commune uh, is involved in the emergence of the Weatherman faction in SDS, which, uh, for those of your listeners who don't know, was a ultra-radical tendency that undertook a bombing campaign in the late 60s as an expression of their opposition to, their war, to the war and their support of the Black Liberation Movement. So it's uh, an attempt, really, to examine some political issues and some historic themes that I think still have relevance through the eyes of the young communards and at the same time to tell a story that I hope readers would find compelling and keep them turning the pages. So, Yeah, it, it did keep me turning. And I, I wanted to ask, so, so you live in Vermont now. Uh, were, were you there yet in the late 60s, or what were you doing in, in the late 60s? I, I, I was there in the late 60s, and uh, I actually went to college in Vermont. And uh, after college, I was part of a short-lived commune. And of course, you know, the novel does draw on some of my own experiences, but I would emphasize that it's a novel. It's a story. Uh. <laughs> I am not a, it's not an autobiographical, though some people have sort of inferred that it is, but uh, yeah, it's an expression of a lot of what I experienced, a lot of what people I knew experienced and went through. Mm -hmm. So this main character, David, it's it's mostly written through his perspective um, with occasional kind of interludes from the perspective of um, his girlfriend, Jill, which I thought was a really kind of clever device uh, to just show that, um, you know, David's way of looking at the situation was not always the only way. Sometimes he had, I think, the right perspective on things. Sometimes he had a mixed-up perspective on things. Um, and it was helpful to get, uh, you know, multiple views thrown in. But one thing that I think uh, is really powerful and some of my favorite writing in the book is sort of David, you know, he's from New York, ends up in Vermont uh, at this commune, as you say, and kind of slowly becomes awakened to the rest of the living world around him. Um, and there's a, a couple avenues through which this takes place. Um, I'd, I'd kind of break it into his his garden, his dog, and just sort of the, the wider Vermont landscape. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, maybe you could talk about um, kind of the the importance of gardening in, in the book and, you know, why David falls so in love with his garden. Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, the book really did try to develop Vermont as a character 
And mm-hmm. as such, it's required David to transcend a lot of his background and come to terms with the realities of living in the country. He became obsessed with growing food, and for him the garden became not just an expression of sort of good work, and and part of the reason the commune was so committed to the garden was that they wanted to grow a surplus of food that they could bring down, make available to the Black Panthers that they could use in their free lunch program. Uh, but for him, the garden becomes more than that. It really becomes sort of his spiritual practice. And it uh, allows him to tune into aspects of the world that he was really quite unaware of before, uh, almost on the microbial level. And the act of growing plants, of nurturing them, uh, becomes a big part of his life and something that he's really committed to. And very important, I think, too, in terms of his recognition that uh, as we used to say back in the 60s, you are what you eat, uh, a commitment to growing food in a sustainable way, in an ecological way, though he was really just coming to terms with those concepts, just encountering them for the first time. And in some ways, uh, his experience was a precursor and an expression of the whole back-to-the-land movement, which was a big deal in Vermont in the 60s. There were over 100 communes that were created and lots of individuals who moved to Vermont to become organic farmers. And it was really the roots of what has uh, become today an organic industry. Though that certainly wasn't their intent or anything that they imagined could happen. But uh, food and the production of food became quite central to the lives of a lot of people living on these continents. And I wanted to represent that in the book. Yeah, I think... You mentioned making Vermont itself a character, and beyond his garden, there's the, you know, there are the harsh Vermont winters, there's the, you know, the, the maple trees they get maple syrup from, there's the, the, the forests and meadows, and just kind of they, they really, um, and David in particular seems to get so much out of just this wider Vermont landscape, and, and how it's often sort of expressed is, kind of a changing emphasis for him from the abstract to the real is how he sees it. Um, and, you know, abstract often being like thinking about political theory or, you know, being able to say like, this is how people should live. This is this. And he, he, he acquires, you know, not just gardening, but also, you know, gathering from gathering firewood to anything else on um, this interest in not just abstract knowledge, but what he sees as something more real, which is, even just, you know, knowing what types of birds are around you or knowing what types of trees are around you. Um, you know, I, as, as someone who's kind of bounced around a couple of cities since college, I, I find myself wishing that I had some place where I lived where I did know more about, oh, I know what bird is calling outside or I know what, um, plant that is. But what do you think is, is important or useful about having this sort of real grounded knowledge that, that might not seem immediately politically relevant. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, David is coming from a, a fairly privileged academic background and his interests are largely theoretical. He reads philosophy and political theory and he struggles with political issues, both on the ground in terms of his movement involvement, but also in an abstract way. He's, he's trying to figure out what makes sense and how the world the dynamics of the world actually work and how he can be an effective agent for change. And I think that for him, 
his encounter with the natural world in Vermont is really grounding. Uh, for the first time, he really develops a sense of place, a sense of community, a sense of belonging, a sense of home. And it's very much rooted in his unfolding understanding of the natural environment and very specifically the place where he lives. And he's taught a lot of that through his relationship with uh, one of his neighbors, an old Vermont farmer, who actually used to own the farm where the commune is based now. And part of the story is uh, the story of Vermont, the displacement of the small farmers over the years through various economic forces. Uh, and through his relationship with this farmer, whose name was Leland, he's really sensitized to the particulars of their farm, of their forest, of the world around him. And it's a very grounding thing and a source of strength for him. And I, I don't think it alters his sense of the need to deal with abstract issues, but it offers a balance. And uh, it's important for him, mm -hmm. as it was for me when I moved to Vermont. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he does keep reading his Marcuse and his Bookchin, uh, who maybe we'll talk about later. Sure. Um, but he he also has a dog, uh, and I feel like the sort of the dog is a big part of his coming to understand the the world of Vermont. They go on you know hikes and cross country skiing trips together, and. Uh, and I, he often describes the dog as sort of part tame, part wild. And yeah, I, I, I wonder what the significance of, of this, this dog in his life is. Yeah. Well, the dog does represent um, sort of another point of entry into the natural world. We, the dog experiences the natural world in a very different way. It's a blaze of reality for him. He runs in the woods, he chases animals, he kills deer. Uh, but at the same time, the dog is very, almost slavishly devoted to David. And the dog is sort of his familiar in a certain sense. The dog is, becomes almost an extension of him. And the dog is very sensitive to whatever David's going through and reacts to it and serves as a, a source of solace for him. Uh, you know, particularly through the long winter that he spends alone after the commune breaks up, the dog becomes a real companion for him and, in a certain sense, keeps him sane through all of that. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, I, I am a dog lover. I've had dogs for most of my life. And it was something else that I wanted to explore in the book. I've, I'm also a huge admirer of uh, Jack London. And of course, okay. he wrote some fabulous dog stories. I just, I wanted to bring something of that relationship into the book as well. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I, I bring all this up, David's relationship to his garden, his dog, the, the landscape. And I think, um, you know, I, I do think many of the other members of the commune are, certainly have some of this same relationship and love for the land. Um, to varying degrees, um, but I think that they, everyone kind of brings into it something different. There are, there are some members who are, who don't really get into it all and into the work of it, um, and some who really do. And I think, uh, maybe some of this disparity comes into even just the use of the word commune, which some of them resist. Uh, they, they sort of 
think of a, they don't see themselves as a, a typical hippie commune um, because they want to also be more politically plugged in. Um, so maybe what, what tension is there, if any, between kind of like back to the land, grow your own food um, and, and kind of remaining plugged into the, you know, the political battles of the time that some of these yeah. characters face. Yeah, well, I think uh, that is a major tension in the book. And actually, the commune does refer to itself as a collective, and they're very clear that they want to distinguish themselves from the, the back-to-the-land kind of hippy-dippy, non-political uh, communes. <clears throat> and they struggle uh, with just that issue. How do you stay connected to the land, committed to this communal ideal, which is not just about creating a life for yourself and your friends, but which they see really as as uh, prefiguring the kind of society that they want to create and embodying it. So they justified their retreat to the country uh, in those terms, that they're really there to begin to create the new society, to build the new society in the shell of the old, in the words of the, the Wobblies, the international workers of the world. And uh, I think there are varying degrees of commitment to that communal idea we see a shifting cast of characters. There's a core group that started the commune and sticks with it, but the numbers swell during the summer. David becomes very frustrated with people who seem to be there sort of just for a free ride rather than having any kind of real commitment to the communal ideal. And the commune itself, at various points, becomes uh, very concerned with their lack of engagement with the larger politics of the movement as we called it back then. And they make an effort to find ways to stay engaged. They, as I said, they're, part of their justification for growing food is to bring it down to the cities to share with the Black Panthers. They organize uh, weekly demonstrations against the war in their town vigils. They organize a major demonstration and a march and an attempt to shut down a machine gun manufacturing plant in Burlington, Vermont. They protest a visit by Trisha Nixon uh, the daughter of Richard Nixon. And ultimately, a number of them leave the commune to go underground to uh, pursue the path that the weathermen have laid out. And that tension, I think, is really central to the book. And mm -hmm. How it gets resolved, how it gets played out, is, uh, is where a lot of the narrative energy for the book comes from. So... Yeah, I want to get into that tension and kind of the weatherman-inspired elements as well. Um, but kind of one more way in which, uh, you know, they they stay politically involved, although maybe in a, a politics that they weren't anticipating um, while in Vermont, is by going to the local town meeting. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, you can talk about it in relation to the book, but also just in general, what are these New England town meetings yeah, well, it's a, it's a very old pre-revolutionary war, actually, tradition of directly democratic decision-making, which still exists in Vermont. We still have annual town meetings there. Over the years, the purview of town meeting has become increasingly diminished. And today, mostly town meeting is about passing a budget for the town, electing town officers, uh, talking about the school and passing that budget. But town meetings have also been used in recent years to address larger political issues. The whole nuclear moratorium movement uh, began as an outgrowth of resolutions presented to Vermont town meetings 
uh, at the Institute for Social Ecology, we ran a campaign calling for the banning of genetically engineered organisms, GMOs, that uh, was passed through resolution at over 80 town meetings in the state. And these resolutions, of course, don't have any legally binding authority, but they do have a moral authority, and they tell the state and our representatives uh, what the will of the people are. So town meetings, even today, I think, have a great deal of importance, both in terms of managing the affairs of the town and giving people the ability to actually have a direct say in those issues. It is still a direct democracy. And at the same time, there is this larger legacy of town meeting. And of course, in the rubric of social ecology, the New England town meeting is seen as one of the sources of the kind of confederal democracy, direct democracy, that we would like to see replace the state altogether. And I think it does have that potential, and I wanted to use the book to explore that a little too. And of course, in the book, the people from the commune use their town meeting to present a resolution against the war in Vietnam. And mm -hmm. that's another expression of their attempt to remain politically engaged. So there are, as we've mentioned, a lot of different ways of of being politically engaged from town meeting resolutions to, you know, the modeling the new world in the shell of the old, as they do in the commune, to, you know, you mentioned the civil disobedience and march action against the machine gun factory. And this isn't enough for, um, you know, it's not enough for a lot of characters in your book. It wasn't enough for a, at least some people in, in the 1960s uh, in real life either. Um, and, you know, in, in some ways it's understandable to try to think about ways to escalate when there's a horrible war going on and so many people are dying and, you know, it seems like whatever marches or protests you do aren't enough. Um, but there are, you know, as I think the book shows and without getting into too many spoilers, but, um, and as I think the real life experiences showed that there are sort of pros and cons to, um, you know, escalating to, to bombings or other, both violence against property and then violence against living beings is, a, is a, another thing. Uh, and, um, so, so yeah, I, I guess I was wondering if you could just sort of speak to that, that dynamic both in the book and at the time. Yeah. Well, you know, I think there's a tremendous tension. Uh, because, as as you said, the, the war was continuing despite all of our protests, despite mass mobilizations, huge marches on Washington, surrounding the Pentagon, you know, uh, burning draft cards. Opposition to the war was really becoming more and more mainstream. And I think the majority of the American people by the end of the 60s were really questioning the wisdom of continuing this war. But the government simply wasn't responding. And at the same time, there was a concerted effort to dismantle the radical movement. The, uh, you know, the notorious COINTELPRO program was going on then. When the FBI was infiltrating SDS, and the Black Panthers, and, and literally knocking down doors and murdering people in their sleep. So there was tremendous frustration and tremendous anger at that time. And I think it's quite understandable that a lot of people felt that marching was not enough. Unfortunately, I think the model that they chose to escalate uh, and to 
become more militant and was one which was really rooted in sort of Leninist and Maoist models of organization and opposition. And it was, as I say, certainly understandable. It was something that I got caught up in, something that I was very sympathetic to. Uh, but at the same time, reflecting on it, I see that America simply was not going to respond to that kind of an action and it was self-defeating. It ended up having an extremely destructive effect, first of all, on the movement, which by the late 60s really was gaining momentum. Uh, SDS at that time had something like 300,000 members and over 300 chapters. It was moving off of the campuses into the communities the ERAP program, uh, you know, there was really some real potential there to build a sustainable, uh, powerful movement that could have, I think, uh, had it continued on that trajectory, been very effective. But that all got blown out of the water with all of the sectarian splits that came, uh, not just with the Weathermen, but with the infiltration of SDS by the Progressive Labor, Labor Party and and other sectarian groups, and it all just sort of splintered apart at that point. So uh, on that level, it was extremely destructive. I think it was extremely destructive as well in the sense that it alienated people who were perhaps on the fence, you know, who were maybe sympathetic to the anti-war movement, but when they saw this violence, they couldn't contextualize it. They didn't see the point. They saw it as kind of nihilistic and simply destructive, and it was scary for them as well. So it was destructive on that level too. And it also destroyed individuals. Uh, you know, I have friends who ended up going underground, spending seven years uh, without seeing friends or family and not really accomplishing much at all politically uh, and having their lives ruined. I have friends who went to jail. I know people who got caught up in it who died in jail. And it was, uh, on, on all of those levels, I think, just a, the wrong path. You know, easy to say in retrospect. But I think we were young. You know, I was 18 years old at that time. Uh, and we were arrogant. We really thought we had it all figured out. And uh, in the movement, there was a tendency towards sort of glorifying and you know, it was an anti-imperialist movement, and the model for revolution in that time was were third world revolutions, which often had a, a component of underground. So it was, on that level, I think, influenced by that ideology, which really wasn't applicable to the conditions here in the United States. Those were all peasant revolutions. Uh, obviously, we weren't going to have a peasant revolution in America. And it, ultimately, it was also... You know, there was an element of romanticism, very romantic to think about being a guerrilla and picking up the gun, especially when you're 18 or 19 years old. And ultimately, it was pure adventurism, indulgence. Uh, so even though I certainly still recognize the impulse, and, and, and I have to say, too, you know, the people who got involved were not, they were not thugs. They were thoughtful people. They were some of the finest people in the movement, really. Uh, they chose a path that was ultimately self-destructive and unproductive. So I, I try to explore some of that in the book as well. Yeah, it's uh, it's an issue that's come up a bit in the climate movement um, recently as well. Um, so uh, the 
through this podcast, Storytelling Animals. I also facilitate a book club, and our next meeting on October 25th is going to be discussing a book, um, White Skin, Black Fuel on the Dangers of Fossil Fascism by Andreas Malm. Um, but the author's most recent book is called How to Blow Up a Pipeline, um, and I'm hope, hoping to talk about it on the show at some point. Um, but it's it's probably best understood not as how to blow up, but why to blow up a pipeline. Um, and kind of makes this case uh, for for property destruction in the climate movement. And kind of, I think there's maybe a similar uh, attitude of, um, you know, one, looking at other past movements that to different degrees used elements of sabotage or, or uh, property destruction from, uh, you know, the suffragette movement to labor movements to the South African anti-apartheid movement. Um, and I think there are, you know, there are others to, to greater and lesser extents who are advocating, um, you know, obviously in, in the environmental movement in the past, there's in the U S there's been, uh, right. Earth first earth liberation front who, who have, you know, burned things down, blown things up and did actually lead to, uh, a lot of FBI infiltration and repression of even kind of the more peaceful elements of the movement. Um, and I'm, you know, I, I would say I'm, uh, I'm sympathetic to, to this impulse in a lot of, you know, I appreciated the how to blow up a pipeline book just in the sense of these issues feel so big, so urgent that like things aren't going fast enough. Like, uh, you know, what we're doing isn't working and yeah, like, you know, maybe we should sabotage a pipeline or, a you know, a, some machine that's cutting down forests or, or what have you. Um, but I get, I'm also, you know, concerned about precedents like the earth liberation front and like the weather underground, which you mentioned, um, that where it didn't just go smoothly, uh, when people resorted to that. So I'm, I'm curious maybe what you, um, what you think, well, maybe we can start just kind of like what kind of more specifically happened with, with the weather underground, um, and then kind of what you, whether you think, what you think about these arguments and discussions and, and kind of climate environmental movements today. Yeah. Um, well, as I said, I think ultimately the results of the actions the Weather Underground took was that they were destructive on a variety of levels. Uh, you know, I, I think in a, it really also depends on the context. You know, if people are ready if there is a mass movement in support of an underground, that's one thing. Uh, that's very different from the situation that existed with the weather underground. Though I think at times people sort of fooled themselves into believing there was mass support out there. But there really wasn't, not even within the, the movement itself. Certainly some people were enthusiastic. But also I think we have to recognize that these kinds of actions, given the armatorium of the state, given the massive development of fossil fuel infrastructure, are going to be largely symbolic. And once again, the question as to whether that symbol is going to inspire people or whether it's going to be used to turn people off and to turn the attention of the state against you in ways that crush your movement is something that has to be considered. So I don't, I won't make an outright condemnation of those kinds of symbolic actions. 
Personally, I prefer to see the kinds of symbolic actions that people like the Berrigans undertook during the anti-war movement and the anti-nuclear movement, where you make that statement, you carry out your symbolic action, and then you also stand to take the consequences and to explain it and to make political points from it. It's too, it's too open to misinterpretation without that kind of clarification, I'm afraid. So, uh, you know, I, I don't see an easy answer. Uh, certainly, the climate crisis is a situation that needs to be addressed, but personally, I think it would be more effective to address it through continued mass mobilizations, uh, nonviolent direct action. Uh, you know, strategic nonviolence. I, 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 I would never deny anyone the right to defend themselves. Um, that self-defense should be determined on the basis of what the nature of the attack is that you're defending yourself against. Um, so I guess that's my, my general view on it. Yeah. So you you mentioned kind of being somewhat swept up in... Uh, these organizations that sort of now you describe as sectarian or that kind of like Maoist or Leninist structure. Well, one, one I wonder if you can just sort of um, explain to people kind of what that means for uh, an organization to have a Maoist or Leninist structure. And two, you know, you then went on to found um, the Institute or co-found the Institute for Social Ecology, which is uh, committed to very democratic uh, organizational structures and um, kind of, in some ways, the inverse structure of those those Maoist Leninist sectarian Absolutely. groups. No, you know, so how do you get to there? Yeah, the, the Leninist model is one that really sees that you suggest you have to establish a vanguard, and then you use that vanguard to seize state power. You create the dictatorship of the proletariat. And then the proletariat, then the, ultimately the state withers away. And we know from history that that's nonsense, that in fact the tendency of the state is to consolidate power and to quash any dissent. And it's the exact opposite of democracy. It becomes authoritarian. Uh, and it functions through a directly, uh, not directly democratic structure, but through a structure based in Democrat, what they call democratic centralism, which is not democratic at all in my experience. It's rather a leadership cadre determining the course for the organization and then putting it out there. You either toe the line or you become persona non gratis. And it's, uh, in my view, the only way we're going to bring about any kind of real change is by creating a mass movement and ultimately majoritarian movement, the only way that you can do that is by incorporating those principles into the organizational form that you're using to try to achieve your end. So if you're looking to create a direct democracy, your organization has to be directly democratic. Uh, and, and certainly the Leninist and Maoist terms that we saw in the 60s were almost the exact opposite of that. They often functioned around clustered around a charismatic leader whose word was seen as, you know, like Moses coming down with the Ten Commandments. And, uh, and I think it was incredibly destructive in the 60s, and I think uh, it would continue to be incredibly destructive, I would argue, against those kinds of movements. And I think in general, 
the left has accepted that wisdom. But really, if you look at the history of left movements from the anti-nuclear movement on, they abandoned that notion of centralized leadership and instead adapted a, an affinity group model, a spokes council model, a directly democratic way of organizing that was a reflection of the kind of society that needs to be created. And I think that's a very encouraging term, uh, though it can certainly be frustrating to pretend that direct democracy is easy, uh, even in the constraints of the Vermont town meeting. We have spent hours and, and have very heated debates around issues, but ultimately we achieve, a, we make a decision and, uh, through a majoritarian vote and you know the minority may not be happy they can come back next year and try to change it but they accept it <clears throat> and i think that's a pretty good model for the kind of politics that i would like to see carried out in the larger society as a replacement to the increasingly authoritarian so-called representative democracy that we have here in the united states today mm -hmm. so uh and you asked about the institute yeah yeah. Uh, I co-founded the Institute for Social Ecology in 1974 with Murray Bookshin, who was really a visionary who understood all of these issues very well back in the 60s and wrote very important essays and engaged in very important arguments within SDS to try to stem the tide of sectarianism, to try to champion direct democracy or participatory democracy, as we called it back then. Uh, and it, uh, I came to those politics after my own experiences with the, the Leninist model. And I found it very disillusioning, and as I've said, very destructive. And just looking for alternatives, and that's really when I encountered uh, first anarchism and Murray Bookchin and his work. Murray and I became acquainted in 1972, and work together to create the Institute, which is now coming up on almost 50 years. We're still going. Nice. So, yeah, in the in the book, David reads a pamphlet from Murray Bookchin uh, called Listen Marxist, um, in which Bookchin criticizes a lot of this sort of centralized, top-down, uh, sectarian forms of organizing um, and yeah, did, was that a pamphlet that you had encountered around the same time, or yeah, how did you encounter was. his work? Yeah, I, I encountered it, yes, and I rejected it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I was, uh, you know, as I say, I was 18 years old. What did I know? Sure. And I, uh, I encountered it, and it was, you know, oh, this is just uh, bourgeois reformism. Uh, we are the vanguard, we know what we're doing. But uh, after my experience with SDS, I encountered another pamphlet by Murray called Ecology and Revolutionary Thought. And that was the one that really turned me around and turned me on to his work. And of course, I've gone back and looked at post-scarcity anarchism with a new appreciation for how precedent he really was in that as in so many things. Mm -hmm. You know, in Ecology and Revolutionary Thought, which he wrote in 1964, he, he warned about global warming. He warned about climate change. Right. Way back then. He saw it. Yeah. Uh, with that someone had heard. Um, so, yeah, for, you know, um, 
for those who don't know uh, much about Murray Bookchin, um, other than what we've said, he's the, there's sort of a he's a very influential figure in in kind of both the the radical left and radical environmental um, movements and their intersections. Um, you know, you'll sometimes hear people say Google Murray Bookchin um, if they sort of are encouraging you to find out more about uh, these topics. But your your organization called the Institute for Social Ecology. And that's kind of the name, most broadly speaking, of the system of thought that, that Bookchin helped develop. Um, so what, you know, I know you could answer in half an hour, but um, you can take your time answering, but what is uh, social ecology? No. Well, social ecology is really an interdisciplinary perspective uh, that is both, presents both a philosophy and a praxis. Uh, social ecology isn't simply an academic exploration. It's also an attempt to figure out questions to some of the most pressing problems that we face today. Namely, how can we reharmonize people in the natural world? How can we create a livable world? And for social ecology, the source of all so-called environmental problems, including climate change, uh, really rests in social relationships of hierarchy and domination. And social ecology is opposed to hierarchy and domination. We draw on studies in anthropology, history, philosophy, feminism, social geography, and explore people's relationship to the natural world from that perspective. Social ecology uh, as a philosophy is concerned with epistemology. How do we understand nature? How do we define nature? And for social ecology, nature is really understood as natural history, as the process of evolution. We see nature as containing everything, including people. People are very much a part of nature, but people also have a place in nature which is different in degree, if not in kind, from any other species. Because throughout natural history, throughout evolution, uh, most other species evolve through adaptation to the environment, to particular environmental niches and conditions that present themselves. Humanity, on the other hand, evolves and social and cultural evolution occurs through the modification of the environment, uh, through adapting the environment to meet our needs. And that can, has the potential to take a very creative turn or to take a very destructive turn. And unfortunately, with particularly with the emergence of capitalism, we've seen it take a very destructive turn, and that destruction has been compounded through the development of industrial technologies that rely on fossil fuels and other forms of industrial production that social ecology sees as being uh, really inherently destructive. A big part of social ecology, at least when we initially started the institute, was exploring alternatives. So that back in the early 1970s, we were advocating and building uh, solar collectors and windmills and calling for transition from fossil fuel-based energy sources to renewable, non-polluting energy sources, and calling for that to occur not in, on the basis of huge industrial installations, but through a decentralized, community-owned and controlled mosaic approach, which utilized all of these various alternatives to create a material base that would allow us to prosper, but to do so in a way that was sustainable. 
related to that, of course, social ecology with its commitment to a non-hierarchical society explored various social forms. And we saw various forms of uh, communalism and mutualism, uh, the transition and transformation of our economy from one that was market-based to one that was based rather on the expression of uh, from each according to their ability to each according to their need as being essential. Bookchin saw the potential for what he called a post-scarcity society. He thought that technology had already developed to a point where we had the ability to meet the basic material needs of everyone without buying and selling and making profit and the kind of mindless expansion that's so essential to capitalism's uh, development. Uh, so social ecology explored both in a theoretical way and in a practical way how we could begin to reharmonize people's relationship with the natural world. On the philosophical level, Bookchin expounded a set of principles that he said were derived from his understanding of nature, of natural evolution. And in a nutshell, they were that nature is non-hierarchical, nature is mutualistic, uh, nature moves towards ever greater complexity and diversity and freedom, and that there is unity in diversity. And these were seen as hallmarks of natural evolution. He never denied the role that competition played, the kind of more Darwinian model. But he also recognized that these other features were both present in natural evolution and latent in humanity itself, that they represented a kind of potential that we could draw on to transform society to create a more harmonious society. And then the third philosophical element of social ecology is the politics. And the politics called for oppositional politics, protests. Uh, no, you can't build that pipeline. No, you can't build that nuclear reactor. These kinds of movements were seen as necessary, uh, but not sufficient in and of themselves. We also called for the creation of alternatives through workers' cooperatives, through the creation of communal forms of living, new forms of city planning, uh, new energy-efficient forms of community and industrial production, and then seeing that also as necessary but not sufficient, and ultimately calling for the creation of a new politics that was very different from the kind of statecraft that we see today that wasn't simply you know, pulling a, level, a lever every four years, but was really participating actively in making the decisions that would affect your own lives. And here he drew on models, which he drew on models like the New England Town Meeting and the Athenian Polis and the folk moats of medieval Europe and the tribal councils of indigenous people. These were all what he saw as expressions of a qualitatively different kind of politics that he thought could be utilized uh, through the creation of neighborhood assemblies, town meetings, other directly democratic forms to create uh, a new politics that could then contest with the existing politics for the ways that we choose to make decisions and control our lives. So it's a, really an attempt on Bookchin's part, and I do credit him as the, the seminal theorist of social ecology, but a lot of us have tried to make contributions and develop it as new 
insights and understandings come to the fore, uh, but Bookchin was really attempting to create a comprehensive perspective, uh, something that really made sense and had coherence. And he was very committed to the idea that uh, action without sufficient thought, without being informed by a really coherent theory, uh, could often turn out to be counterproductive. So while he certainly advocated action, he wanted to be action informed by theory. And then in the sense of true praxis, wanted the experience that people had in applying that theory to come back to be examined critically and to make any changes in the theory that seemed to make sense at that point. So it's a very dynamic perspective too. It's not ossified, it's not a dogma. It's really more of a system of philosophical inquiry than it is a, a set system or ideology. And it's interesting because the ideas have resonated with a lot of people and a lot of movements around the world. And you know, today we're seeing something like four million people in Kurdistan and the Rojavad region of northern Syria who have actually implemented his ideas through a process that they call confederal democracy, uh, based largely on Bookchin's philosophy in a very conscious way. And millions of other people around the world have sort of, through osmosis or through their own experience, developed these ideas. So that, in a nutshell, is social ecology. But as you say, you know, at the Institute, we teach uh, summer long courses that explore these ideas in much more detail. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, I should say for my listeners that I'm currently enrolled in a couple of, of those classes taught by the Institute of Social Ecology. I, um, you know, I wrote an article once for a social ecology journal. Um, I, you know, the, the, I'd say in, in most of all the, the politics and to some extent the philosophy, but, um, the, the politics of social ecology were very influential and in kind of developing a lot of my own, uh, worldview and, and views on, on political issues. And so, uh, yeah, you know, I, I guess the, as we're talking about this, this is something that has been kind of critical and impacting how I think about these things and also the sort of the ideas and the people I, I try to bring on the podcast. So, so I guess all that is to say that um, it's great to have a co-founder of that institute um, here on the show. And uh, so, so Bookchin, as you mentioned, is, um, you know, a is extremely prolific writer, um, very involved in, in the organizing of the period. Um, he, you know, through these, some of these pamphlets like Listen Marxist, He's, he's not afraid to, um, pick fights, it seems. And, and so I'm, I'm wondering what it was like working with, with someone like that. Uh, it was a trip. <laughs> <laughs> now, Murray was, he was a remarkable person. You know, he was an autodidact. He never went to university, but he ended up writing 25 books and becoming a full professor. Uh, he was a brilliant man. He was really a genius. And his work was truly prescient. Uh, you know, his first major work was a book called Our Synthetic Environment that examined problems around chemicals in food and the chemicalization of the environment. And he published that book six months before Rachel Carson came out with Silent Spring, which is largely credited with beginning the modern environmental movement. So he saw it all pretty clearly back in the 1950s. 
Uh, he had a background on the left. He was a member of the Communist Party, the Communist Youth Wing. Starting when he was nine years old, he left them and became a Trotskyite. And by the 1950s, he turned to anarchism. And later in life, he also uh, issued a pretty devastating critique of what he saw as, as self-indulgent tendencies in anarchism as well. So he was a very dynamic thinker. He continued to develop his ideas over his whole life. At the same time, he was a pretty, uh, he could be very acerbic, loved to engage in polemics. He really had very little patience for people who didn't attempt to create coherence in their own ideas. He was not afraid to critique other tendencies in the anarchist movement and the environmental movement. He made a lot of enemies as a result. Uh, but when you reflect back on his work, when you reflect back on things like his critique of deep ecology, uh, his critique of postmodernism, uh, you see that uh, in large part he was, in my view at least, he was really right on the money. Uh, he was he was a brilliant guy. Um, he was a dear friend of mine. We were colleagues right up until the day of his death. Uh, I loved him, uh, but he could be difficult even on a personal level. But uh, I would really, really recommend that your readers Google Murray Bookchin. I know he would have hated being a meme. I'll tell you that. Uh, I don't think he he would have appreciated about being reduced to a meme. Uh, because he really was all about coherence and, and, and trying to, not, not complexity for the sake of complexity, but understanding that, in fact, uh, history, ideas, social change are not simple, that they require deep thought and analysis. And if we're going to succeed, that we also have to have a utopian vision. And that's a very important aspect of his work that's often ignored, but he really was a utopian, not in the sense that he projected a cloud cuckoo land or something unachievable, but in that he believed that we could create a, a better world, that we could create a reharmonization of people in nature. He used to talk about the emergence of a third nature, which humanity would represent where we, we would become nature-rendered self-conscious, nature aware of itself, and stop these destructive practices and instead find ways to work with and husband and nurture nature and allow for the unfolding of potentialities that we can't even imagine today for humanity. So he was a real visionary and a very inspiring person. You used this word utopia or utopian. Um, the, the title of your a nonfiction essay collection is, is the anthropology of utopia. Um, what is the benefit of of having a, a utopian vision? You know, people often deride utopia, as you mentioned, as um, kind of pie in the sky and um, you know not that useful in the moment. But what what is what is the benefit of, of keeping alive this utopian tradition? Well, you know, the word is used in a derisive way now. It's a dismissive. It's a, it's a put down, but. Uh, there's another definition of the term, too. The word was coined by Sir Thomas Moore, but it had two roots in the ancient Greek. Utopia, which meant a good place, and autopia, which meant no place. And it's in the first sense that Bookchin was utopian and that I am utopian. 
and, and that doesn't mean when we talk about a utopian vision, it doesn't mean a blueprint that can be mechanically implied, applied everywhere. It's rather concerned with a set of principles that need to inform a particular utopia in every community, every bioregion, depending on their history, their culture, their particular environmental conditions, will have a, a somewhat different vision of utopia. But the broad principles are the principles of social ecology, a non-hierarchical, mutualistic, diverse uh, community, which is homeostatic, which is both stable but constantly developing, but developing in a harmonious way. Mm -hmm. So those are the general principles. And then details are going to have to be worked out by individual communities. And the value, I think, is that, first of all, it's a point of inspiration for people. If you have a clear sense of where you want to go, uh, you know, it helps you get up in the morning and get going. It helps to inform the work that you do. And that's the second aspect of it that I think is very important, is that it, it gives you a sense of directionality, recognizing that we're not going to achieve utopia overnight. In fact, we'll never achieve it, you know, as we approach it. By nature, if it's truly a dynamic, evolving process, it's going to keep receding in distance. But as we approach it, <clears throat> if we have a vision that allows us to check whether those little incremental steps we're taking are moving us in the direction we want to go or taking us somewhere else. So I think that's vitally important as well. And uh, for me, that utopianism can serve as a real source of strength for a movement, uh, and it can win people over. You know, if you're putting forth something that's attractive, that offers a real alternative to the kinds of degradation that people experience in their everyday lives today, that can bring people into your movement, and it can help. It, it's a source of nourishment. Mm -hmm. And then maybe just to, to end by bringing it back toward uh, sugaring down. You know, you're, you're an anthropologist by training. You were involved in uh, the Institute for, for decades. What, uh, how'd you end up writing novels? Um, you know, I, I felt that academic writing reaches a very limited group of people. And I think that's important. I, I'm not, you know, I mean, I've been involved in more academic pursuits, though not particularly traditional ones for many years. But I recognize that, uh, you know, it's just not everybody's cup of tea. People, Some people will read an academic essay and take great inspiration from it, and others will read a sentence and yawn and put it down. Uh, so I wanted to try to find some way to communicate these ideas to people that would be more accessible and reach a different audience. And it seemed to me that fiction had the potential to do that. I've always loved fiction as a form. I've been inspired by a number of books over the years, and I was hoping I could write something that might have the same impact on other people. So that's that's really why I, I turned to fiction. And it's also something that I derive a great deal of personal pleasure from, really, as a process that I enjoy. What are some, uh, some other fictional works that have been inspiring or influential to you? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I mentioned um, Jack London, who I read right. when I was a kid, and I, I loved his stuff, recognizing as an adult that he was deeply flawed, that his politics, in fact, were pretty horrible. Uh, he was a racist, as many were in his time. Uh, 
uh, classic works by people like John Steinbeck had a tremendous impact on me. I like the work of Barbara Kingsolver mm -hmm. uh, very much. Uh, you know, certain writers in the oeuvre of science fiction, Gwen, of course, um, Octavia Butler. I like very much Jim Stanley Robinson, who I know you've interviewed recently. I admire his work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, is there anything else you want to add, either on on the novel, on your experience in the '60s, your experience since then, on the IS Institute for Social Ecology? Anything else? Um, well, you know, let me do a little bit of um, promotional work here. I, I do have another novel also called Loisida, which yes. is about a young anarchist on the Lower East Side and explores the history of those ideas in that particular place and draws on a, a lot of my experience working in that neighborhood back in the 70s and the early 80s. Looks at issues like gentrification, what happens uh, generationally between a young anarchist punk squatter and her great-grandmother who was part of the Yiddish anarchist movement on the Lower East Side at the turn of the century. So I urge people to pick that one up. Uh, certainly take a look at Children Down. And please uh, look at the website of the Institute for Social Ecology and see if there are any courses or articles or anything there that interest you. Because that's really where we get into a lot of these ideas in much more depth. Cool. Um, and yeah, I should mention too that I, I obviously I read Children Down. I have not yet read Lily Sida. Um, I did read that Anthropology of Utopia collection I mentioned, and that kind of has some of the nonfiction elements of oh, yeah. the, the Institute's I, I, work with, <laughs> uh, but with uh, specifically the, there's some a couple of good chapters on um, the work of, of those anarchists in, in the Lower East Side, East Side yeah. um, that kind of my understanding is inspired the novel. Um, Absolutely. So so yeah, uh, I. The books are Sugaring Down, Lois Ida, and The Anthropology of Utopia. Sugaring Down's the new one. Um, and this was Dan Chodorkoff. Thanks so much. Great. Thank you very much. It was really a pleasure. That was Dan Chodorkoff. Thank you so much for listening. Um, if you're interested in the book club you mentioned, you can find more information on that, as well as on a number of other things in the episode description. Um, thank you. Have a great day. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D dot com. Ow!